I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. So I think I'm going to write a comedic essay, a very short comedic essay about putting my dog on antidepressants. And it's going to be really fun and lighthearted, like whimsical, you know? And this was improbable for so many different reasons. Like I don't write short things. I don't write whimsical things. And putting my dog on antidepressants was not lighthearted. I was also on antidepressants at the same time. It was like a really, really dark chapter in my life. Um, But it's like, I have to sort of um, create uh, an appealing or, or sort of easier seeming, uh, threshold or doorway to walk towards so that I can face things that are are daunting, but that are going to be incredibly rewarding to look at. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing the essayist and memoirist and friend, Melissa Phoebos, whose books include Abandon Me and the memoir Whip Smart. And as of yesterday, include her new book of essays, which is a gorgeous collection called Girlhood. Girlhood reexamines Phoebus's own adolescence with an eye towards the stories that girls are taught about themselves, uh, especially the stories that actively work against their safety, happiness, or freedom. 
And in the collection, she sets out for herself to reframe those values and beliefs in her own life. She came on the podcast to talk, uh, talk about writing that collection, but in particular to talk about writing essays that start out as seeming to be about something pretty low stakes, kind of fun, and then turn into something, a writing project that requires personal excavation and a lot of soul searching and real reckoning in order to finish. Essays that make you remap your own mind while you write them. She also came on to talk about A Cuddle Party and Dogs She Has Loved, uh, which I'm excited to share with you. A quick content warning, we do allude to sexual assault in this conversation. Here's Melissa Phoebos. You know, when I'm writing a book, I don't, I don't think very much about what the essays have in common until pretty late in the process. And so it's really in, in the later stage when I start talking about it with other people that the nuances of, of what what shared undergirdings exist, you know, beneath the essays start to really emerge. And, and the one that has been most interesting to me lately is, and I did not practice talking about it because I was just sort of thinking about it in a sort of wordless way, but um, it has to do with this new book and uh, how do I say it? It's like, the way for a really long time, um, I resisted and also could not find a way to name some of the harms slash wounds slash, um, everlasting effects of coming of age in a female body. Um, and as a result of sort of struggling to name those things, I just didn't. And in fact, sort of rejected the idea and a whole lifetime of evidence that I had been sort of affected in really profound ways. Um, and, and this book sort of against my will in some ways just kept coming back to it and coming back to different examples of things that had happened in my past and the, the story I had about them and how it, it didn't work anymore. And I had to sort of come to a new understanding of what they meant. All of that sounds really abstract and I'm happy to give lots of examples, but that's sort of the thing that I keep returning to. I love the idea of something, of a book acting against your will in some way. <laughs> what did you think you were writing about or what were you wanting to write about when you kept getting tugged back in this other direction? Yeah, it's more like, it's not even that I, um, I think it's like I, uh, and I should say against my will, when I say my, what I mean is like the very surface, most superficial layer of my consciousness, right? It's like the part of me that is thinking about what my third book should be about and how it should be different from things I've written about before. And, you know, uh, there are leagues and leagues and leagues of other realms of consciousness below that. Like I, I'm, I'm certain of that, you know? And so the thing that is acting against the will of my superficial consciousness is a much wiser, um, is a much wiser part of myself. Right. So, um, so a lot of times when I start writing, I have one idea of, of what I'm going to be writing about or one sort of expectation. And in hindsight, it always looks completely ridiculous. Like I remember one time I, 
I, I started writing this essay and I was like, so I think I'm going to write a comedic essay, a very short comedic essay about putting my dog on antidepressants. And <laughs> it's going to be really fun and lighthearted, like whimsical, you know? And the, this was improbable for so many different reasons. Like I don't write short things. I don't write whimsical things. And putting my dog on antidepressants was not lighthearted. I was also on antidepressants at the same time. It was like a really, really <laughs> dark chapter in my life. Um, but it's like, I have to sort of um, create uh, an appealing or, or sort of, easier seeming uh threshold or doorway to walk towards so that I can face things that are that are daunting but that are going to be incredibly rewarding to look at and to tangle with and to redefine my relationship to so my experience with every single essay in girlhood um was very much one of like oh here's a here's something I'm curious about or this will be this will be like a vacation from the sorts of things I usually write about. <laughs> um, or like, what could I possibly have left to say about my own adolescence? Um, and then I start writing and almost immediately it becomes pretty clear that I've entered into like a different kind of labyrinth, you know? Um, and, and, and the truth is that, 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 sort of darker and scarier material is exactly what I've come for. And it's the thing that interests me. And it's the thing that will keep me writing for the rest of my life. It's just like that, those first steps toward it, you know, like that first step through the doorway is, is hard to do without um, a fantasy that it's going to be easier than I know it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, the idea of saying, okay, I'm going to sit down and really untangle my traumatized relationship to girlhood. Like, that's just a lot to start with. You know, (laughs) yeah, it doesn't say it's like not something that I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of writers who would be like, yes, that is my I want to sit down when I contemplate that. But often it feels like when you're going to sit down and really try to rework or unwork some big some big ideological or personal thing in writing it's you're not you're finding yeah you're finding your way in through a back right. door that feels less scary right and I think it's 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 also kind of necessary for me particularly in this book but maybe in everything I write because the thing that I really have come to the page to write about is like some mechanism in my own thinking that I cannot fully see Right. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. it, there has to be a, a kind of a MacGuffin always because I can't see the thing that I'm coming to write about. But um, there is a consciousness of it, I believe, somewhere in me. Um, I just I just can't know what it is before I, before I get there. Right. And if I did, there would be no reason to write about it. That just sounds like a perfect description of my own experience of writing, too, of like, I, there's something going on in here, but I don't totally know what it is. And then like a third of the way through, I'm like, oh, shit, and <laughs> I'm like re- remaking my consciousness is what's going on in here. Yeah. And then you're stuck finishing it. Um, or like <sighs> the feeling of like, oh, I'm not going to be able to finish this until I've evolved as a human being. Mm-hmm. Shoot, you know, mm-hmm. um, the big mm-hmm. the bigness of that project can be really intimidating when in when in girlhood or in the process of amassing the essays that make up girlhood did you feel like you started to have you started to understand what you were up to hmm. 
I think, I think, you know, I really approach each essay and I, I know that you write similarly, I think, um, but each essay feels like a very distinct project. And I don't really think about its relationship to the other ones until pretty far, even though that seems unlikely when I look back at it. But I would say when I was writing, thank you for taking care of yourself, the cuddle party essay, mm-hmm. I was like in the middle of that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it was killing me. And the the writing of the first draft of that. And I, uh, that was when I really was like, oh, that is the project of this whole book. It's just as you said, it's like, I'm remaking my consciousness like this isn't what I signed up for and of course it is exactly I'm the one holding the clipboard you know but um but this is not this is not what I thought it was going to be I didn't realize I was going to have to do this again and and I'm probably going to have to do it again for whatever remaining essays I had left there were there were only there was only one essay in here that felt um that felt different that felt like I was sort of reflecting on something that had already happened um and that's the last essay in the book but I would say in the in the cuddle party essay in the middle of it I was like oh god I really did this this is the work this is the work that I came here to do and it's far from over (laughs) this is you know in sort of classic Melissa move um a friend of mine sent me a link to something called a cuddle party um, and I was like, this looks like something you'd be interested in. Ha <laughs> ha. And, and I looked at it and I was like, um, that looks like something that I am not interested in. And I'm definitely going to go check it out. Um, which is like, uh, <laughs> should have been an alert right there that there, it, it, that, that sort of mechanism was at work that you described so well about. Hmm, something's here, you know, um, because I had such a powerful sort of aversion to the idea of paying to go to a room full of strangers and cuddle with them. Um, Mm -hmm. like I just, few things have felt more instantly repellent to me. Um, and, and I, I do know now that when I have that kind of strong reaction to something, there's always, it's historical, you know? Um, and so I decided to go and I, I, brought my partner and a friend of mine, the friend who had suggested it, um, and, uh, sort of just out of curiosity, I think I thought maybe I would write about it, but again, something fun and whimsical and more journalistic, or, you know, it was definitely not going to be like a deep wrenching transformative experience. It was a cuddle party, you know? So, uh, we went and, um, and the whole first, like hour of the cuddle party was basically a workshop in consent, um, which is part of what had interested me. Um, and it was, we did these sort of role plays with the other people there um, and practice. There's a lot of emphasis on enthusiastic consent, on ongoing consent. Um, and, and I thought that part of it was really beautiful. And then in the cuddle portion, you know, afterwards, uh, when I was back in the car with my partner and my friend, I was like, how was that for you two? And they were like, Oh, it was amazing. So great. (laughs) How was it for you? And I was like, horrible. It was a nightmare. (laughs) Like I feel terrible and I cannot explain why, you know? Um, 
And then I basically, it felt sort of like the inciting incident in like a sort of psychological mystery where I was um, the detective and the case, you know, Um, because I immediately was like, what happened? Like, why should a cuddle party make me feel like that? That is the opposite of how the cuddle party is intended to make you feel. Um, And I just sort of had to follow the trailhead of my own discomfort back through the experience I'd had. And what I uncovered was, um, you know, uh, uh, a pattern of behavior that in the SAI call empty consent, um, where I basically realized that since childhood, certainly since adolescence, I had been consenting to forms of touch, particularly sexual forms of touch that I felt often ambivalent about and a lot of times actively did not want. All the way through my whole lifetime of like feminism and sex work and just like felt like I was a person, it was just a surprise to me, you know, even though I knew my own history, but it was a real surprise to me and, and, you know, and sort of the the project of the essay became after figuring that out, um, trying to find a way to change it, to sort of figure out what that mechanism was and how to undo it. Yeah. I love the, I have like loved the phrase empty consent when it appeared in this essay and the whole, and, and the kind of mystery like structure of the essay, I think because you, what you're, what you're retreading is this thing that you it's it's almost like you're trying to to redefine what consent looks like having having realized accidentally that the kind that the thing you were practicing when you thought you were practicing consent is not what you want it to be or what maybe other people feel like it is right right um yeah exactly and that's sort of that's the that is really epitomizes the kind of threshold that I was trying to articulate. And then I still struggle to, to name in many ways, because by definition, it is a thing that I have not named, which is why this essay, I think, feels so important to me, because it, it actually, it's, it's the one that actually gives a name to something that felt unspeakable, partly because there were no words to describe it. Like I did not, it was just sex. You know, it was just mm-hmm. like consensual sex, but it was not the same as, you know, the kind of sex that I have now, you know, um, like what it, it, what do you call a sexual experience that you have consented to that you don't want that has a lasting effect on your psyche and on all of the following sexual experience? Like I did not know what to call that. I still don't really know what to call that. Um, because it doesn't, I'm not comfortable calling it trauma. I'm still not comfortable calling it trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and sort of, you know, it's, it's like this huge umbrella and, and, you know, like those more nuanced experiences, just, I don't feel comfortable sitting them alongside, like many of the traumas that, you know, everyone I know, it seems sometimes, but certainly most of the women in my life have experienced, um, and, and, you know, I think that's, um, I think that's intentional, right? Uh, I think that it's like this mechanism of our society that's meant to sort of perpetuate itself. And when we don't, when we don't know how to name something, it's really hard to know if other people are experiencing it and certainly to change it either in our own lives or um, in our culture. 
I was really struck um, reading this and then listening to what you're saying by the fact that, like, one of the central dramas here has to do with, like, retroactively realizing that you were in a different story than you thought you were all along mm -hmm. or that <sighs> something I want to say about, like, um, agency, the way, like, mm -hmm. so much of this essay is about having thought of consent as a form of exercising agency but then realizing that your agency was compromised all along if the consent yeah. was something that you were giving because you were afraid that it would be meaningless if you withheld it yeah. um and yeah. and that kind of like startling experience of realizing that you were of looking back at, at a different part of your life and realizing that that you were completely wrong in your self-narration of what was happening or like limited in your self-narration of what was happening feels like such a theme in this work and maybe is the threshold you're describing of having to go back and kind of untangle what those narrative threads were that you thought you were living at the time and renegotiate them because you've realized that they weren't quite right yep yep exactly I um it's so humbling and it's so vulnerable like relentlessly vulnerable you know I and it's funny maybe you get this like as a um as an essayist and someone who has written about personal stuff like I get a lot of people saying to me I don't people sort of suffer under the the misperception that I enjoy feeling vulnerable and right, enjoy like disclosure <laughs> right and I just and then I enjoy going back and like processing difficult you know and like and I I don't but I do in many ways feel like my survival depends on it and I and I guess in, in many ways I am sort of stubbornly committed to sort of wanting to define my own story and to you know, ferret out those parts of my mind that are not my own and that I didn't choose. Um, and I guess I care more about that, but, but it's been, I felt when I finished this book, I felt so tired, <laughs> like so much more whole and also so tired. Um, and I was like, I don't know. There was this interview that I gave shortly after my first book came out and I remember the interviewer was like saying something about about adolescence and her experience and I like sort of tossed off this quip that has haunted me ever since and that and it was like oh I don't know anything about that like my adolescent self was too busy getting finger banged behind the mall. Um, and which really sort of epitomizes a, an approach that I had for a really long time to my own adolescence, which was um, this really sort of like old. And now it seems to me like vulnerable and immature response to sort of psychic pain or unresolved um something that like if I pretended that it didn't matter or acted as if my younger self was like in more control than she was then that would make it so you know yeah that like adopted cynicism of the person who's still right. reading 
Yeah. Right. Like I was this sort of callous little promiscuous person who was like running around town smoking cigarettes and getting finger bang behind the mall when I was like a kid, like an incredibly vulnerable kid who like was actually not interested in getting finger banged behind the mall at all, but had no idea how to navigate my way out of that situation, you know? And and in many ways this book was really about sort of going back like like that was just one tiny example of a story that like came out of my mouth in so many different ways that felt like now feels so sort of both innocent and cruel, you know, um, and having to go back and, and figure out like what was really going on then and the ways that even in the decisions that I was actively making as an adolescent, I felt like completely disempowered, you know, and out of touch with, with, the sovereignty of my own body. I, I that just um, rings so many bells in my head because I feel like that there's this like recurring theme at that age of feeling like you can ha- you can you can handle like I just remember feeling so cynical or just like willing to accept the way the way of the world as I thought it was when I then as an older person look back and think like Jesus that was ter-, you know that was awful whereas at that age at you know being a girl of 12 or 13 or 14 I felt mm-hmm. like oh well this is just what it is and I am in control and I can handle that like I want to feel powerful and so mm-hmm. what power is going to mean is being willing to sort of like accept and not be surprised and not be not mm-hmm. be vulnerable mm-hmm. um in the moments where I, in fact, am vulnerable in ways that I can't even see. I'm like too, I'm too vulnerable to even see how vulnerable I am right now, which is something I think you can't, it's like hard. Maybe some people with more introspection at that age are able to, to really frame that for themselves, but it was not something that I could see until I was like in my twenties. Yeah. I don't, I don't know anyone who could, (laughs) you know, which is why like when I was, interviewing other women while I was writing this book it really just there were like moments and even just listening to you talk right now there's a part of me that is in awe of the efficiency of a patriarchal society and it's like most uh nuanced mechanisms you know that there is that like I mean that we the incredible sort of um illusion that this is just how it how it is and of course on some level it's true that is how it is that is what sex is that is how we understand it you know but that sort of the our only route to empowerment in a lot of those situations is to presume that we have more power than we do and that we're not as vulnerable as we are and that prevents us from talking to other people about it or like looking for fault anywhere beyond ourselves um and it just like keeps the whole thing running so smoothly you know yeah or just like even imagining that there is anything that there that you might have any recourse that instead of sort of like throwing up your hands and rolling your eyes and being like oh whatever this is just like this is this is gross or this is wrong but it's just how it is and I'm you know I'm worldly I'm knowledgeable I can you know handle that I can handle this situation I can handle that information like the thing that that does is prevent you from feeling like it shouldn't be that way. And so you, you, you can, or should, um, insist that it's a different way. Um, that does seem like such a theme of, of that age, but, but one that it's hard, 
it's like hard to look at often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people just don't, it's just easier to not look at that for yeah. in retrospect. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, um, I, I actually have like a really deep understanding of people who don't want to look at it because it's incredibly uncomfortable. And it also, you know, requires, like there was a part of me, like when I was writing the cuddle party essay and I sort of like, dug out it was like you know in the sci-fi movie where they they like find the chip that like the bad guys have been following them and I was like oh fuck you know <laughs> like here it is like I still am working so hard in these invisible ways that I'm not even conscious of just sort of um negotiate my own body for the comfort of a total stranger and their desires like that even after like all these years of like reading things and talking about it and having a certain set of politics like it there it is you know and and there's a part of me that just wants to like drop the log and keep walking you know what I mean <laughs> and like not deal with what's like crawling around under there um because because with that comes like a responsibility to being awake to things that it's easier not to look at even if I know that they're harming me you know like I don't want to have to um even just suffer the awkward experiences that I now I'm sort of consigned to where other people like come in for the hug and I just back away (laughs) yeah which like obviously hits a little bit differently in the pandemic but um, but, but the, the consequence of writing that essay and sort of solving that psychic mystery was that I am no longer willing to consent to touch that I'm not comfortable with, even if it makes other people upset or creates awkward situations as it inevitably does, you know? Do you feel it? I mean, that's a pretty profound change for an essay to produce in a yeah. person. Yeah. Um, it's <laughs> like a really big one <laughs> did it like do you feel like it changed your did it do anything for your for you in a craft sense you know it was that essay was one of I mean this book was so uncomfortable for me to write in a craft sense also because it the sort of project or the you know the the goals of the essays when they emerged really sort of demanded that I use methods, craft techniques that I wasn't comfortable with and that I don't have any training in. Um, And so I had to sort of learn how to be a journalist in some ways and interview other people. And, you know, I will say like the, the cuddle party essay more than other ones and maybe more so than any other essay I've ever written, the, the experience of it, the essay really prompted the action in my life. Like I did not start writing the essay because I wanted to figure this out or I wanted to change this. I didn't even know it was happening, you know? And I just wanted to write something snarky about a cuddle party, maybe. I don't even know. Um, And so, you know, I went to the first cuddle party and I had that experience. And then I went home and felt weird about it for a really long time and had a bunch of conversations And then sort of went on this journey of like talking to other women and reading a bunch of stuff and talking to my therapist and thinking about my history. And then at the end of it, I went back to another cuddle party at the suggestion of my partner who was like, I think you need to go have a redo and say no. Right. And so 
it was also like, it was for my own experience, but if I hadn't have been writing the essay about it, I definitely wouldn't have gone back and I wouldn't have sort of closed the deal on that transformation in myself. And so it was one of the most sort of lucidly, uh, the most, uh, like I could really see the way that the essay and it, the meaning of that action in my own life were completely entangled and entwined and were sort of um, provoking each other and, and prodding each process along, which was really interesting. Um, and I think that that's often happening with my writing, but it's not always as clear to me as that one was during the process. So um, I don't know. It was, it definitely sort of, I had a different relationship to the craft of it while I was writing it. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if that's something that's sort of provoked by the fact that it was a reported essay, that it wasn't mm -hmm. just like the thing that you needed to do, you know, driven by craft to make the essay, right? It wasn't just like, oh, let me go back and reread this book or let me mm -hmm. think some more about X. It was like, no, I need to like complete a further step on the hero's journey of this reported right, essay. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It really and, reminded me of, um, had, uh, in my last book, I had uh, this incredible experience where I was sort of writing the story of a relationship. And I, I thought that I was writing my, I was intending to write my way towards a happy ending where the relationship worked out. And as I was writing, I was just completely in my writer brain. And I had this very, very clear thought as I was writing and totally detached from my own investment, like as myself in my life, just thinking about the, the, the story I was writing. And I was like, oh, the correct ending to this is that the narrator ends this relationship. And then I was like, oh, whoa, no. <laughs> and like went back to trying to live my happy ending. But it was like, there was no sort of getting away from that once I had looked at it, you know, and it was, it was the same with this essay. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, that was, I think my favorite moment in this essay where, <laughs> where your partner says like, no, you have to go back and just say no again and again. Like that's the, that she supplies the ending. Yeah. to you in a way yeah. and then you get yeah. to go live it yeah and it's funny because my reaction to that was like uh no that would be so rude you know <laughs> which was the whole the whole premise of the problem right is that I didn't want to assert my bodily boundaries because it would be rude you know <laughs> because it felt rude to not let somebody spoon me who I didn't want to spoon a total stranger you know mm-hmm I'm going to ask if you'd ever had that experience where you oh arrived at a realization about yourself that the essay, if it became sort of like a crystal ball in, in that kind of way. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. I can think of two examples of that. One is that I had, I wrote this essay, which I may have, I don't remember if I showed you parts of it while I was still working on it, if we were already doing that at that year. But this, the essay that I wrote for the believers called the Marthas, yeah. um, which I just like decided to write kind of on a lark because someone was having I was like um friends were over for dinner at my house and someone was like oh yeah I like heard about this debutante ball of like Mexican-American girls dressing up like Martha Washington on the border with Mexico in Laredo and I was like oh like my little radar uh my my little antenna went up and was like I'm gonna I should go write about that and I went and I reported it and it was fascinating and and like fertile. And then I came back and I just could not, couldn't draft it. I just could not figure out why. Um, and I couldn't figure out why it was so hard for me to draft it. And 
I was realizing as I went that part that like one of the reasons why I was struggling so much is that, um, is that that, that I, I went in thinking like in a detached way that it was going to be sort of like an interesting way of exploring the cultural contradictions of people who are living on the border of like Mexican American families living on the border. And then I realized accidentally that the reason why I was there was that it had to do with the like trauma in my own family <laughs> that like, that I actually, I was writing a story about my mother and my grandmother and, and what it means to be, um, under undergoing the pressure of exerted on women, exerted on Mexican American women and, um, like, Latinx women on the border. And like, I just hit this unbelievable wall that I couldn't actually couldn't get around until, um, I talked to my mother about it because I realized that the, the reason why I couldn't write the essay was because I had this deeply ingrained feeling like this wasn't something I was allowed to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, and I happened to like have, I mean, I don't know. I think I had like two panic attacks and just called my mom or she called me right when I was like in the middle of a panic attack trying to write this essay. And she was like, well, maybe you should write about this and this and this. And she started telling me things from her growing up. Yeah. And that was when I kind of realized that the thing that the essay was doing that I had gotten in there to do um, without intending to was to resolve this difficult thing in my relationship with my mom, in her relationship with her mom, um, which felt really scary to do um, because it's also not just my life. It's also not just my story. Um, and that, but like the essay became the vehicle formally because yeah. I couldn't write it without doing that. And so I had to do that in order to finish, oh. to finish this essay, which felt way heavier than what I thought I was getting into when I was going to go like do this cute thing about a debutante ball. Yep. That all sounds just unbelievably familiar. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, this is a good idea. How novel. Yeah. yeah, like how fun! Like I had been reading oh. um, "Queen of the Night" by Alexander Chi that summer, and I was like, "I this I, I'm gonna go write about dresses." Yeah. Exactly, I was like, "I'm gonna go write about dresses." It's gonna be so, and it's gonna be interesting, and like, oh, it's kind of topical, and like, I know that area. I have, you know, like my family's from <laughs> from the border. Like, I'm totally gonna. This is gonna be accessible and simple for me. And instead, it was like profoundly hard and. um changed yeah. my relationship with my mom. I mean, in good ways, like it was great, but it was not, um, it was not the simple thing that I thought I was getting into. That has been one of the, um, one of the other terrifying gifts of the essay form, um, is that like, in addition to those revelations about my own psyche and my own experience, uh, like you just described, Often I have walked toward the like seemingly novel, whimsical subject and have circled back around to similarly scary, um, transformative conversations with other people in my life that I would never, ever have initiated otherwise because it felt, because they felt impossible or scary or like they weren't allowed. Um, and, and mostly just because I was afraid of them, because I was afraid of the conflict or of what I would find there. And, you know, as a result, um, I mean, it definitely has created um, a lot of 
I want to say hardship, but that doesn't seem like the right word. It's been hard. <laughs> it's been difficult. <laughs> um, and in the end, I do think it has ultimately um, made those relationships much more intimate and much more honest, which is sometimes uh, can be burdensome in itself, but I, but I wouldn't change any of it, I don't think. As you were talking, I was sort of developing this theory, which is that I think I think the essay can be a really difficult but profound form for people who are conflict averse <laughs> and like who are conflict averse and maybe who feel like they don't always they're not always willing to risk the vulnerability or the conflict of saying what they actually think out loud all the time like the essay is often a space where i think and maybe i sense you know like reading your books that this is might be true for you too that like writing is a safe space to actually figure out and say and articulate what i think what my problem is what my questions are um, in, and, and I'm not likely to do that, or I'm very resistant sometimes to doing that in my relationships or in other places in my life. Um, and so like essay, the essays will like throw up a formal problem that like drives me to, to, to have mm-hmm. to be straightforward, um, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. people or with an issue, or even just with myself in ways that often like sort of drag kicking and screaming. Is that, what, does that sound right to you? Oh, absolutely. That you absolutely just described um, my experience of it. And and it's interesting because sometimes I think it becomes sort of a chicken or egg thing because I have had the thought many times that I am so much more loyal to my essays than I am to myself, (laughs) that I will be Mm -hmm. honest in an essay or for the purposes of an essay and the the art than I ever will be sort of in my life or in any other form really. But then I don't know if the essay is my form because that truth is so desperate to be spoken, right? Because it's like, I'm not, I'm not a fool. I know that people are going to see it eventually. And there are other ways to say things that don't end in publication. You know what I mean? So, um, so I don't know. And in, in the, where I usually end up when I when I go along this sort of path of thinking is that um, I understand my drive to write as a as a real sort of survival mechanism and as a as a as a a really complex and successful form of sublimation that <laughs> you know? I have committed my entire life to this sort of form and creating this because partly because it offers an avenue to a kind of truth telling that I do think my relationships and, and a lot of ways that, that I want to live do depend, you know? Yeah. I tried to describe, and this is another thing that I think people sort of, um, uh, misunderstand about nonfiction writers and about essayists is, um, they think that we're the type of person who's sort of fearlessly talking about ourselves or revealing things when actually I think that we are, among the most secretive people, right? And it's only because in writing is like the most alone I can be and still say something, right? It's mm-hmm. just it's me like concretizing the words 
kind of. And like, that's the only way I could eke them out. <laughs> you know, like imagine having to perform that process in front of other people. Like if people were watching, I just would, it would absolutely not be the thing that I do at all. Um, yeah. And I, I return again and again. Like I remember many years ago, um, a therapist quoted Winnicott to me and said, um, was just sort of listening to me talk about my experience. And she was like, um, it is joy to be hidden and disaster not to be found. And it just like, I almost peed my pants, you know, I was like, Oh God, is it going to have to be the epigraph to everything I ever write? Um, but it really does feel sort of, um, I just like, it's close to me all the time because I've rarely found anything that sort of named my experience or like the, the sort of little, the mechanism, um, that, that so much of what I do can be traced back to. How does it feel to you then when people like read your work which which I imagine to them feels like uh, then maybe they know you or they feel close to you or like how does it how does being seen in the mm-hmm. sense of having your work be read feel? Um, not as intensely as I think people imagine, and this is a this is something I'm incredibly grateful for um because I think it's part of what will allow me to write for the rest of my life and what gives me some distance from like publication or caring about sort of what comes out of that is that like because of all of the the things we've been talking about my relationship to writing is such a discrete process from publication or being read and I'm not really thinking about that at all and by the time it happens I have undergone such a complete process of transformation um, and of sort of comprehension of my own experience and it has already been of so much value to me and my relationship to the material is irrevocably different you know it is um so by the time it goes out there it's no longer the vulnerable thing that I didn't even know was in me. It's something that I feel completely or maybe not completely, but that I've digested to such a, such an extent that it doesn't feel vulnerable for other people to see it. I mean, it does to, to, to some degree, but um, I don't know. I think with my first book, it felt different. And now it's really sort of not my business, you know? Um, it's, I'm okay with the fact that there are people out there who feel close to me who actually don't <laughs> don't know me at all. That's fine. And my, I have spent my whole life feeling intimately connected to writers and characters that I have never and will never meet and in some cases don't materially exist, you know? Um, so I think it's okay if... if uh, some version of me is out there doing that work for other people. It's fine. And it, and it doesn't really seem like anything for me to think about too much. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds really healthy. <laughs> yeah. I've never arrived there. I didn't start there. But, <laughs> um, uh, and I, and you know, it, it can be tricky when I interact with people. And just, I even, since the publication of my first book, which was like more than 10 years ago now, it's, it's different. Like readers have so much more access that I, that I actually find myself interacting more and in more sort of complicated situations where people will write to me and tell me about their experience. And I just can't 
respond to everybody, you know? And um, I sort of sometimes fantasize about when you would just read a book and the author was just like this mystery out there somewhere. You couldn't just like look up their email and and write to them, Mm -hmm. which is really nice in some ways to be able to hear from people. But um, I don't know. I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind the privacy of um, exposing certain things and then not really having to talk about it too much afterwards. Mm -hmm. It sounds like by the time these things are in the world, you've like moved on to a different site of privacy. It's like, um, the, 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 like what people are getting is this, the snake skin that was shed and the snake is elsewhere doing its, its other things. It's true. It does. It does feel a little bit like that. And I mean, it's nice because it makes it easier to talk about. It doesn't feel like emotionally wrenching at all to talk about the stuff. Um, uh, I do wonder sometimes like, is that going to end? You know, like, will there be, or like, do I get a break book? Do I get, do I get to write my beach read? And will that whimsical comedic? <laughs> Wait, like, are you ever just going to get to write about putting your dog on Prozac and like a cute 500 word thing? <laughs> I know. Um, and I actually have this uh, ongoing joke where she has come up with this idea where she's, she supplied me with this suggestion that I should write this book and it's called dogs. I have loved. And it's just like these tiny little vignettes about dogs that I have known and loved or encountered with little drawings that somebody will do. And it's like a coffee table book and it's going to be the thing that, um, you know, allows us to quit our jobs and everything. So every time I sort of walk out of my office and I'm like looking you know, emotionally, haggard she's like dogs I have loved it's sitting right there I handed it right to you I don't know what you're doing <laughs> you know we we walk around our neighborhood uh coming up with with little like monikers for all the dogs uh and and so sometimes we'll even talk through some of the entries in that book and what the drawing for like the scamp should look like and um yeah maybe someday Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.